we were in lead of the convoy. We were the convoy uh, head of the convoy that night. So we looking around and what we looking for is wires, disturbed dirt, just anything that looks like uh, something's been placed, you know. But we we didn't see anything. So my gun truck commander was like, hey, you know, um, I'm not going to, you know, continue without you guys is, you know, approval. He was like, because your lives are on the line, just like mine's is. And if something happens, it's going to be all of our choices together. So I was like, I, I don't see that. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm cool if you want to keep going. So the driver was like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool or whatever. So we, uh, he radioed back to the convoy commander and was like, all right, we don't see anything. We're going to, we're going to keep going. And we went over to West spot and a bomb went off on us, you know. And this is Intentional Danger Field. Intentional Danger Field Podcast. Yo. You don't want it with these LFL type of hitters, interviewers, and critics. Cats all about their business. Yeah, we put it out for every one of our listeners. If the topic's official, we get it popping like crystal. Yeah, we put it on. What you know about that? Sitting back in the lab, we can't on track. C3 mastermind. Yeah, you know about cheese. Spit speech unique. Still connect with the streets. See, Taji is the cipher complete. Round table like kings. 360. So what was, what was you talking about? The uh oh, I finally tried Savage. that. So Todd finally tied the chicken sandwich. Finally. So what was that like? It was fire. No, Actually, I mean, we can't so, just start so, with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah, happened? Yeah. So uh in DeKalb. Whoa. <laughs> so you had to leave town to finally get there. Finally, yes. There was. Proceed, please. The, you know, the cow has northern, what, northern Illinois? Yeah. The kids ain't care about the chicken sandwich. So I see a Popeyes. I see an opportunity. You did, didn't you? You know, because we don't, I haven't had one. Was, I'm like the no, only one. No, I do have to ask, was this one of those Popeyes, since you said you was up north, was it one where you could visit with a vehicle or was it just like a storefront you had to walk to? We you can do uh vehicle. It was both? Yeah. Okay. It was both. So there was it no was an li- official one. No line. Oh, it was a line. Okay. It, yeah, it was a line. So uh the wait was probably like twenty minutes, twenty, twenty five minutes. <laughs> like like advertised. Yeah. Uh but yeah, man, it it was like I, I came in there, I seen a dude, he, and I was like, man, how what you waiting on that chicken sandwich? You was like, yeah, I'm waiting on the chicken sandwich. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, man, how long you been waiting? <laughs> oh, not that long. So I'm like, oh, it's promising. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, man, I got it, and I, you know, I was kind of mad at first because I was like, man, I need some more food until I open the package. And then open the package up, and it's like, man, this is a thick sandwich. Told you, brolic. Yeah. I ate one, because I was like, man, I might get two then. Because, you know, I was just hungry. Getting greedy. See, that's how that's how the line starts. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I might as well just get two. Instead of getting one, 
You want, but you only got one, right? I, I only got one. I was good. Okay. So I was like, all right, somebody. If I didn't get the uh, the the warning first, I probably would have just got two, hmm. easily. But got one, ate it, flame, and I do. I actually do think <laughs> <laughs> OG or spicy. OG, because okay. uh, the spice. I, mean, I, I just I like so to taste my. So food. you went Bobby Johnson. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. OG. So, uh, so uh, it was fire, man. And then, so I'm all about Chick Fil A, really. Right. Man, it, it, it's a rival now, huh? It's a rival to it. I never thought that. I never thought in my life that. Popeyes could rival Chick-fil-A ever. So people's getting killed for a reason out here. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't kill anybody for it, but golly. You see where that happened from, huh? The yeah. the rage. The rage is real. Everything though was pretty, pretty peaceful. Probably has uh, a lot to do with that weight though. Hey. You sitting that long in a line. And speaking of weight, the weight of that sandwich after you ate that boy. Oh my god! Thanksgiving you, dinner. You was done. Like I was done all the way. So you was on the road, right? Oh yeah, I was on. The you road. had to drive with it. I was weighing down the whole trip. Possibly, <laughs> hey, it was, was a, weighed down. Yes, no if, fish tail in here. Possibly thinking about the pull it over. Stop. Pull it yes. over. But I needed low. home court advantage. Definitely on that. Yes. So it ain't no. We had to just get through that, but it was good. You recommend it? I recommend it. You did, and you said something interesting in there. You said it was fire. And speaking of fire, we have a fireman in the building. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. As always, your host, C3, alongside with Todd Pabilius. You know what that beat is. That's E. Cannon over there. This is Intentional Dangerfield. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest this evening, Mr. Daniel Berkeley. He is a husband. He is a father. He's an Army vet. He's a full-time firefighter. Active member of the Society of Children, Book Writers, and Illustrators. He even self-published his first book back in 2009. We'd like to welcome him to the podcast. What's good? Thank you. What's up? How you doing? How's things been? Uh, Things been pretty good. You know, I kind of, you know, just trying to get my personal life back. I had got a little bit of fame there for for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody want to, even while I was at work sometimes, we was on a, a a car accident, and the lady got out. She was like, "Hey, aren't you that firefighter that wrote the children's book?" As she took a picture with me and stuff, you know. So the guys at work they get a kick out of that, you know. And you know, it's kind of funny every now and again. People want to snap a picture and stuff. That's cool. So before we get to that, let's 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 backtrack a little bit. Let's get the origin story. Um, where did you grow up? What did you like to do when you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Jacksonville, Illinois, and growing up, I was all about uh, playing Army Man, believe it or not. That was just one of my things. You know, I I had probably about a few hundred these green little Army Men, and I would just sit there all day and play with these toys. And um, 
I just always told myself, yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to go to the Army. You know, I'm going to do that and stuff. And I would have, like, Glory and Saving Private Ryan <laughs> on full blast on the TV while I'm playing with these toys. And then uh, I try to do that with my kids, you know. So I went and brought my kids a bunch of these Green Army men and stuff and try to relive my childhood through them. And they was like, ah, Dad, we, uh, no, nah, we ain't playing with them. They don't want that, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. But, yeah, growing up in Jacksonville, you know, it was not, uh Nice little small town. Uh, one of uh, my childhood friends, uh, Les Hammers, he's actually on the fire department, too, uh, with me. Uh, we grew up driving around in uh, power wheels, you know. And uh, there was one time where uh, my uh, my mom had forgot to unlock the back porch so I can get my power wheel out before she went to work. So me and Les, you know, uh, we trying to break the power wheel out. He was bigger than me, you know, when uh, we was kids. So he climbs on my shoulders with a hammer, you know, trying to knock the uh, the chain off the nail so we can get the power wheel out. And he drops the the hammer on my head, oh. you know. So I always, you know, you know, mess around with him about that story and stuff. And my sister was like, "Hey, you know, get out of here!" She kicked him out the house. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, growing up in uh, in Jacksonville was cool, you know, uh, and just. Uh, Doing like little country kid stuff, you know, playing in the, in the creek and stuff, and doing little things like that for real. So, uh, in in Jacksonville, did you come into town much, Springfield, or because to me, I, I don't know any too much about Jacksonville. We had um, Art Wilson on. I think I asked him a couple questions about Jacksonville because you know coming. Thinking about Jacksonville, be, living in Springfield, it's like, it's a small town, so you just yeah. like, oh, yeah, probably not too much, but did you, so did you come into town much, or was it just Jacksonville? No, we actually came uh, to Springfield every weekend, because I got family that live over here, you know, and uh, the first thing we do is, we, uh, my mom get off of work or whatever, we come over, uh, stop by Popeye's, get a big <laughs> bucket of family chicken, you know, and then go over to my cousin's damn uh, house, and we just play all day and just stay over there, you know, for the whole weekend and stuff, hanging out with them. But that was the extent of it, you know, just going over to their house. They had lived over on, like, a 16th and a Cornell, so that's where we would uh, always be at. <laughs> and you said that you you don't you, you enjoy playing with Army men. So leading up to growing up, did that play a big part of you joining and enlisting in the army? Yeah, uh, I had started getting in some trouble in high school, you know, like the typical teenage boy, you know, trying to do my own thing. Uh, my dad was like, hey, you know, if you're going to live in my house, you know, you're going to be home at this time. Well, whoop de woo, you know, and I was just like, well, uh, I guess I got to leave, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. and I was real young. But I, I knew I always wanted to go to the army. So, uh I went to the Army, and I was 17 years old. I graduated Jacksonville High School early. And um, so I went to the Army guy, and he asked what I wanted to do and stuff. And I was like, you know, I wanted to fight, you know, because I always wanted to know if I had what it takes to fight in a real battle and stuff, you know, especially when you're watching Army movies all the time and everybody seemed like they brave. You know, I was like, yeah, you know, that's that's what I want to do, you know. So uh, I had a, a older brother and an older sister already in. And uh, so I tell my brother, like, yeah, you know, I, I passed the the ASVAB, you know, so I, I can go to the military and stuff. And uh, my brother was like, well, what do you uh, what did you tell him you wanted to do? 
I was like, infantry. My brother was like, what? <laughs> He's like, are you crazy? Yeah. I was like, well, what's wrong with that? He was like, hey, no. He was like, no. He's like, you trying to get killed, yourself yeah. killed, man? He's like, he like, you're not doing anything with Re at the end of it. <laughs> I was like, what? He was like, nah, cavalry, nah, infantry, artillery, none of that. And stuff. So he was like, "What you gonna do is, uh, my brother, he's an eighty eight Mike. So uh, what an uh, 88 Mike is, you drive anything with wheels in the military. You can be trained and operated. So that's what he was doing. He was driving uh, semis for the army, and uh, he was like, uh, "So what you gonna do is, once you finish basic and AIT, you gonna they're gonna give you three options uh, to pick where you want to go, and then you tell them that you want to go to." 101st Airborne out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, so you could be in my unit and stuff. So that's what I did, you know. I put that down, and then my older sister, she was down in Georgia, so I put her unit down next. And then uh, I forget the third one. I think uh, it was somewhere close for the third one. And I ain't getting none of them. (laughs) (laughs) They ain't ain't give me any of them. So uh, I'm standing there, and uh, the guy was like uh, Berkeley, and we had two Berkeleys in uh, in the company. So he's like, Berkeley, uh, Kaiser Slaughter in Germany. And I was like, oh, that ain't me because I know that wasn't one of the choices that I picked. You right, know? Right. And uh, so the other Berkeley goes, which Berkeley? And he was like, Berkeley D. And that was me. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like, it must be a mistake. This wasn't one of my choices. You know, yeah. he was like, that's where you're going. <laughs> you so know, chosen for you. Yep. So you went to Germany, right? Yeah, 18 years old, going to Germany. How, how was that experience? It was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. <laughs> yeah, it was lovely. Uh, uh, most of us call it a, a black man's paradise over there. What? Yeah. Germany? Germany. Yeah. yeah. Explain to our listeners yes. and Todd kind of what that means, just to, to briefly. Uh, so black man's paradise uh, in Germany is over there. We the exotic ones. You know, so it's like having, you know, a dude from France come to Springfield, you know, speaking all that French to the lady. So when they see a, a African-American black guy from the U.S., you know, with the swagger, you know, I had the, the saggy jeans. I and, didn't uh, think this place exists. Yeah, it, it, it does. It does. <laughs> yeah. Where is this place? And the ladies, man, they just go crazy, they go crazy over you. What? Yeah. This is the... I, I mean... I guess I'm the only one shocked here. I, I don't. I, I don't <laughs> I, I've definitely heard that. I've definitely, You've heard that before? for sure. For sure. Germany because of what he said. Yeah, because of what he said. Servicemen abroad, a lot of places, it's like that. How was the How was the food over there? The food was good. Uh, you know, I actually had my first. Uh, we had schnitzels, donut kebabs. We was, uh, they had the little stands after every club, you know, eating those uh, sauerkraut and all that. I, I even started uh, to actually learn the language a little bit because I was there yeah. for two years. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I've been there, but you know, all the you know like Guten Morgen, Guten uh <laughs> like each Libadish, you know, I love you. I think. You know, of course, I had to learn that for the ladies. All the important stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at this time, when you're deployed, had you already begin writing poetry, or did this happen after or during the time? Uh, you know, uh, I actually uh, started writing poetry in high school. It was uh, I was in the eleventh grade, and my teacher, she was like. Uh, if every if any if you guys gonna pass my class, you gotta join the young writers competition. 
uh, Young Authors Competition. Mm-hmm. And what it is is uh, you have to write a poem. She's like, you're going to either write a poem or you're going to write a short story. But to pass my class, everybody got internet. So, you know, being a high school student, you know, I was like, ah, you know, I'm just do something real quick. So I wrote a poem, you know, and that was my first time ever trying to write something creative, you know, poetry wise, because I was trying to be a rapper for real, <laughs> you know, trying to. So I just spit like a quick little flow uh, on some paper. And uh, it was about uh, this bully when I was getting beat up in uh, elementary school. You know, I was the first grader and this dude was beating me up in school and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to write a poem about this bully. But it's not going to be like those little sad, you know, little poems. So I actually uh, did a poem from the bully's perspective, like how he enjoyed, you know, beating me up at school every day, you know. And uh, the teacher actually thought it was real funny, you know. So I turned it into her and I ended up winning uh, first place in high school with that. And then uh, it went to the next uh, little level uh, and I won first place in uh, the, the school surrounding our area. And then a couple of weeks uh, went by, and then I got invited to, uh, I want to say Macomb University. Uh, well, well, no, not Macomb University. It was uh, Western, Western Illinois. Yeah. Western. yeah, I got invited to Western Illinois and uh, for the state competition. And I actually won third place in state in poetry. And that was when my teacher was like, uh, you know, I think uh, you might have a, a talent in this poetry thing. So, And that was actually uh, the only poem that I, I had written. At that time, and then once I deployed to Iraq is when I started writing again. So how long was it from your deployment to Germany to Iraq? You say so you went two years in Germany, mm-hmm. but did you go to Iraq right after that? No, I went to Iraq in between. So the unit I was supposed to go to was getting ready to leave. So when I graduated high school, I finished uh, basic in AIT and then uh I, I got to my unit in June of 2005 and they were getting ready to leave in uh, August to go to Iraq. But by the time I had got to my unit, they had already met their they numbers. So they didn't need me. So they sent me to a different unit that wasn't scheduled to deploy until the year after. So that first year in Germany, you know, I just got to turn up, you know, and, and, yeah. and experience life, you know, and uh, one of the funny things was is we landed in Frankfurt and I was remember waiting for the shuttle to take me to the base and I seen these huge jackrabbits, <laughs> you know, and I never seen a jackrabbit before and if you don't, if you never seen a jackrabbit, they like four times bigger than the regular rabbits you see running so around here. So what's that, a dog? It's a big rabbit. <laughs> it is. I was like, man, what is that? And he was like, it's a jackrabbit. It was big. You know, it was like uh, Bugs Bunny because. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just loose and free. <laughs> yeah, just running around. Free, huh? Yeah. Oh, he oh, yep. needs to be. Woo. Yep. So, um, you know, I'm 18 uh, years old. And uh, the shuttle, we was at this like little bitty oasis or whatever. And uh, some dude asked me if I wanted something to drink. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm not old enough to drink. You know, he's like, oh, well, the drinking age here is 16. I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll take a beer, I guess. And I don't even really like beer, but I drink it anyway, you right. know. And that was kind of like my introduction to uh to Europe. Mm-hmm. So, golly, won't take long. Yeah, but uh, you were saying, uh, so I got to spend that that entire year, you know, hanging out, you know, 
getting used to the uh, the military lifestyle because once you're on, because I was on active duty, so active duty is pretty much just like a, a regular nine to five job, except for you uh you wake up early in the morning at six to do PT from like six to seven, and then after that you get to go back shower, have some breakfast, and you come back at eight thirty and you work from eight thirty to five o'clock and then you off, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so we did that, and uh, while I was over there, I was actually a, a mailman. You know, uh, so I would drive over to Frankfurt in the morning and I drove tractor trailers. So I wasn't like a door to door mailman. I was a cargo mailman. And they'd be like, all right, you know, so I go to Frankfurt and they'd be like, OK, this this shipment needs to go to France or this needs to go to Switzerland or, or Brussels. And that was my job, just driving to different countries, dropping off mail. And it was it was a nice experience. You know, it was yeah. real. It was it was lovely. I got to see a lot of Europe while I was over there. Um so after after about six or seven months, we got our orders to uh, to deploy, and they they were like uh, we were going to be replacing a gun truck unit in uh, this place called Q West. It was about thirty miles south of Missoula. So uh, I was like gun gun trucks, and they was like yeah. So we're going to be doing security escort missions. So from that point. I was like, man, I'm about to go over there and get killed, yeah, <laughs> you know, because I was like, this is what my brother warned me about, yeah. you know. But I was, you know, uh, I was excited, though. You know, I was young. Uh, I had just turned 19, and I-, I wanted to see if I had what it takes, you know, to to fight in a in a real real combat, you know. So, so six months out, we started training, and uh, we started doing nonstop drills for ambush tactics and learning how to you know maneuver convoys and control civilians in a convoy because we weren't escorting military personnel we were escorting civilians so we had to be able to make sure we knew how to control them during chaotic situations so we went up to uh, uh, a place called Grafenvir and they had like a mock city built up strictly just for running these these uh, drills over and over Day in and day out for about three months. That's all we did. And then uh, after that, got to come back home for a little bit, chill out. Uh, came back, did some more training. And then we we shipped out to uh, Kuwait. And we climatized in Kuwait for two weeks. And then we were in Iraq. So in the middle of it. Yep. So were you ever in any hairy situations? Yeah, I did. Nervous, I, scared situation. Uh, you know, um, when I was over there, we had three, three young guys. We had a guy named Dominici. He was eighteen. We had another guy named Johnson who was eighteen, and then I was nineteen. We were the youngest people in the unit, and I was in country for about three months. And uh, my my commander wouldn't let any of us go out on mission. You know, so my my roommates they started kind of clowning me. Oh man, you just scared, you know? <laughs> you, yeah. know you scared to leave the gate, you know? And uh, I was like, so I started complaining to my squad leader about you know not being able to leave. So my commander was just saying, you know, Berkeley, uh, you're young, you know, and I'm not sure if you're ready or not yet. And I was like, well, what do you mean you're not sure if if I'm ready? I, was like, I did the same training that everybody else did, right? You know, so I was like, you know, put me in the action, you know. I was like, I'm I'm ready to go. So he's like, all right. And uh, the next day, I was out on mission, and the first time I went out on mission, 
uh, an ID went off and it blew this guy's legs off and stuff. And I, I had to pull security for it. And I was just, you know, looking like, you know, man, this dude's legs is still in the vehicle on fire, you know, yeah. wonder if he could feel it or not. And, um, but, you know, being over there, I'd say, uh, so the one thing about being a, uh, a gunner in a, uh, a security uh, company is we don't get to go look for the bad guys. The bad guys always come looking for us. Mm. So whenever we did get attacked, it was always an ambush, you know? So the enemy always attacked us when they thought they had the upper hand on us, you know? So it required you to be quick on your toes and, and to be ready. And it was, it was almost muscle memory with the, uh, when we would get attacked and a lot of the times it would be a hit and run, you know, a couple of bombs will go off and then that'd be it, you know, nothing else to follow or we'll get some AK 47 fire and that's it. Uh, but, uh, there was one, uh, one time where we had, we had to fight and it was a full out battle and, uh, it lasted about 15, 20 minutes and we had to actually call air support because we were pinned down in the city of Missoula and uh that that was you know i had been blown up before uh that but that night it was like man uh i think i think we ain't gonna be able to survive this one because it was just so much uh power and and and, you know if it's a sensitive subject we don't have to go into it but you know me not being in any type of military never being in any combat all i know is the from the movies so when something goes off, such as like an IUD, the hearing goes and then there's a like a ringing. Did any of that happen or was. Is that a stronger impact that takes that to happen? Uh, you know, that's sometimes. Uh, but the funny thing is, is you always say the same dumb thing whenever ID goes off. You know, what the was that? Yeah. <laughs> every every time, you know? And I seen a lot of bombs go off. Uh, and I, I I said the same thing every time, man. And uh, you know, um when I actually got hit by an ID uh for the first time, it was in December of uh two thousand and six. We were going to Kirkuk and uh we were we were driving on uh Tampa and we came up to a, a wet spot. On the on the highway, and I had peeped it out, and I told my my convoy, uh, my my gun truck commander, I was like, hey, you know, slow down real quick, because as a gunner, I'm on top of the vehicle, so I have a better view of what's going on the outside. And I was like, um, you know, the road wet for some reason, you know, and it's it, it was only wet for about six or seven feet, you know, and that's odd in the middle of sure Iraq, you know. So we stopped, you know, and we were. Uh, we were in lead of the convoy. We were the convoy, uh, head of the convoy that night. So we looking around and what we looking for is wires, disturbed dirt, just anything that looks like, uh, something's been placed, you know, but we, we didn't see anything. So my gun truck commander was like, Hey, you know, um, I'm not going to, you know, continue without you guys is, you know, approval. He was like, because your lives are on the line, just like mine's is. And if something happens, it's going to be all of our choices together. So I was like, I, I don't see that. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm cool if you want to keep going. 
So the driver was like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool or whatever. So we, uh, he radioed back to the convoy commander and was like, all right, we don't see anything. We're going we're gonna to keep going. And we went over to West Spot and a bomb <laughs> went off on us, you know. And uh, we got hit by, by two bombs. Uh, the one that we ran over was a pr- uh, pressure plate uh, anti-tank mine. Under the- Explain a little bit what that is. So uh, uh, an anti-tank mine is pretty much like a, it's a flat bomb that is, uh, it has a pressure plate. So once you roll over it, and then once that uh, pin drops down into the, the mine, when it uh, it uh, causes a um, a reaction to cause the device to go off. So that went off underneath the the vehicle. And then we had a secondary bomb on the side of the road that detonated on the side of the vehicle. So we got hit on the bottom and we got hit on the side. And uh, believe it or not, we were still able to keep rolling. Um, it only blew one of our tires on the ASV, which is an up-armored uh, security vehicle. And, uh, you know, we, we got down the road. And I, I did get the ringing during that, you know, since it was a direct hit. Mm-hmm. You know, had the ringing. I had the deafness. Um, I actually got knocked out a little bit from that blast. And, you know, we go down the road for about a mile. We do our rally point. We assess, you know, the damage to the vehicle and stuff. And it was, it had some nasty shrapnel. Uh, and I remember there was uh, probably about an eight-inch piece of shrapnel. It was all jagged. And it was sticking in my uh, my gunner's hatch window. Whoa. And my uh, my uh, squally was like, man, Berg, he's like, that one had your name on it, man. <laughs> you know? What's, what's going through your mind at this point? You know, I was... I was young and dumb, yeah. you know. I was like, "Oh man, it ain't nothing," yeah. <laughs> you know. And and I was, uh, I was, I want to say I was kind of excited and happy at the same time that you know I can officially say you know I'm I'm a combat veteran now, like I actually done yeah. something, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was just a, a small little little taste because IDs became you know normal for us to where sometimes you know you kind of. You kind of laugh at them if they ain't big enough. You know, like, man, you know, you hear a little ID off, like, Pew! like, man, they will get out of here with this, <laughs> like, with this weak. weak stuff, man. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but, you know, then some of them would, would go off and it'd be chaos, you know, because it kills, you know, it kills or now the convoy is disrupted because we got to figure out how to get this disabled vehicle and these bodies moved. And we worried about, you know, is there going to be a secondary attack after that, you know? And and then you get the the all-out ambushes uh, in the middle of the night in uh, Mosul and stuff like that where, where all it is is you spraying, they spraying, everybody spraying bullets, you know, and you just trying to, you know, get from point A to point B and stay alive during, during the ambush. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Definitely. No so you, you, you've gotten deployed to Iraq. You come home after that? I go back to Germany. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then from Germany, do you come home? Uh, from Germany, I go back to Germany for a year, and then I go back to the States after that. Okay. And at what point do you become a firefighter? I didn't come uh, become a firefighter until... I got back home in 2008, joined the reserves uh, because my, um, you know, they offered me a lot of money to stay on active duty. 
I remember talking to the guy. His name was uh, uh, Star First Class Crockett. He was like, um, so what you going to do, Berkeley? You you, you going to stay in or what? I was like, man, you know, I ain't trying to get killed, you know, because <laughs> uh, at the time we was on one year. We was on a year on year off rotations to go back. So I knew uh, in 11 more months I was going back over there, you know, so I was like, nah, I'm, I'm going to go in here, get out. And uh, when I had told him I didn't want to get killed, he told me to hold on. And he went back and printed off some papers and started showing me uh, people that was back from my hometown in Chicago. Well, I'm not from Chicago, but from Illinois. You know, when you say Illinois, everybody always Chicago, go to Chicago. Definitely. You know? So he started showing me people from Chicago my age that, that were killed or whatever. He was like, look at him. You know, he did, <laughs> you know, and trying to convince me to stay. And uh, they offered me. $20,000 to do another three years uh, on active duty. Man, he was saying I could go to any station I wanted. He said I could stay in Germany. I can go back to where my brother was. Uh, and then he said it was tax-free since I was in Europe, you know. And it was... Uh, Enticing. It was. I was like, uh, you know, 20, 20 Gs, you know. But by that time, I had I already had 30000 in my savings account. Uh, How old are you at this point? 20. Okay. Yep. So, so that's, that's big to you, right? Yeah, that's a, that's Pause. a lot of a lot of cash, you know. Yeah. So uh, I was like, you know what? Uh, let me think about it, you know. And then uh, two of my roommates, which were, were real close to me, they got out, you know. And once they left, uh, cause you know, talking to them, you know, they like, yeah, I'm getting out and stuff. And then you know, you get that same motivation, like, yeah, I'm gonna get out too, you know. Mm -hmm. But once they left, cause they had left like six months before I did. You know, and then I kind of was like almost about to stay in, you know, like I started getting more people saying, oh, man, why you want to get out and stuff? And uh, I had got promoted a sergeant. You know, I, I was uh, the youngest uh, sergeant in my company. I had made sergeant in two years and um, I was getting ready to stay. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to get out. And the reason why I got out is because at the time uh, my uh, first sergeant was all about mass punishment. You know, so one person messed up, everybody got to, you know, be in trouble for it. And I was tired of that. You know, I was like, you know what? Uh, somebody had got a DUI or whatever, and uh, he took our weekend passes from us. So we all had to stay, yeah. you know, and I was like, you know what? I'm getting out. Yeah, I'm going to get out. And uh, what I did was uh, I joined the reserves because uh, since I was a sergeant, he was like, if I'm out for longer than a year, if I decide to come back in, they're going to take my stripes. So uh, I joined the reserves so that way I can keep my stripes. Mm -hmm. And I, I so I did three more years in the reserves. And also, uh, they say if you're on active duty, if you, you'll you know within six months if you can, can survive in the civilian world, you know. And so I got out, uh, went, jumped right into school, uh, going back, uh, backtracking a little bit. I was writing poetry while I was in uh, Iraq. And then that's when I, you know, Started publishing my first, you know, children's book uh, while I was in the reserves. Then I did um, three more years in the reserves. I was going to college at the same time. And uh, my uh, my first the, at the end of the first semester of my senior year at the University of Illinois here in Springfield, uh, that was in 2010, um, the Springfield Fire Department, you know, offered me a job. And then I went through this, uh, you know, background investigation and testing and all that stuff like that. And then I ended up getting hired on 
in uh, January 2012. So from the time I got back home in 2008, four years later, I got, you know, hired onto the Springfield Fire Department. So you were writing children's books before you had kids? Yep. Okay. And I I never get, because we had somebody, or we we had... uh... Uh, Mr. Shanklin on he he wrote a children's book. Oh, I I talked to uh, to Mr. Shanklin a lot. Yeah. You know, um, but I, I I never got to ask the question just because I I just didn't get to ask the question. But what make what what makes you gravitate to writing a children's book? Uh, you, you know, because just like I've never had the uh, you know. Cause I don't, I, I've never had that, mm-hmm. uh, come up in my head, but you know, everybody has their own, uh, skill or their own style and stuff. So what made you want to do children's books? You know, we all got our different, uh, intros to do what we do. Uh, Mr. Shanklin, uh, I believe he had, uh, a son pass away. You know, that's why he's, he wrote his book. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, you know, um, I was always into uh, adventure stories. You know, like when I was growing up as a kid, you know, I grew up watching Rugrats, mm-hmm. Chip and Dale and the Rescue Rangers, oh, yeah. you know, Tom yeah. and Jerry. You know, those were the things that I, I grew up watching, you know. And I read a lot of Shel Silverstein and Dr. Seuss books, mm-hmm. you know. And speaking of Dr. Seuss, you know, I just learned some some negative stuff about Dr. Seuss about he, uh, you know, he he's a, a product of his time. So I, he's written a lot of, you know, stereotypical, colorful. yeah, colorful stories about colorful. blacks. Yeah, you know, and uh, but you know, prior to that, you know, I was that's all I would read was you know Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein books and stuff like that. And while I was in Iraq, you know, um, I would daydream a lot. Believe it or not, I'm in the gunner's hatch daydreaming. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. and um. You know, we did most of our missions at nighttime and I would always be, you know, looking up at the sky in my turret and I would always think about outer space and stuff like that. So when I would write these stories and everything, it would always be about some adventure, you mm-hmm. know, and it it was a good feeling. You know, it was fun. You know, it took my mind off of where I was at, mm-hmm. you know, and so I continue that. So a lot of my, my stories are about outer space and magic and all this cool stuff, you know, and it just kind of flowed, you know, perfectly for me to become a, a children's author. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I, it's just, cause you just don't think, like I've th- thought about other, you know, not maybe books, but like movie scenes and stuff like that, but you do go to a, a different world, like everything, you see it all in your head and it just, Everybody has their own thing that they go to, and uh, I, I'm mad that I didn't get to ask Mr. Shanklin the same question, even though he did say uh, his son, you know, his passing mm-hmm. was one of the reasons why he did. But writing children's books, you know, that's just something that I, you know, is different for me, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So now I believe that you said that you were a strong believer in bringing diversity in the children's book. Oh, most definitely. Um, could you explain to our listeners how uh, important that is? Yeah, so so right now, 
uh, and this is old statistics, you know, going back to like 2018, 2017, um, that out of all the children's books that were published in the year 2018, uh, less than 25% had primary characters or characters in general of color, you know, and of that 25%, less than 7% um, of those books written for children of color were uh, written by blacks. So you have all these African, all these books that are being published, less than 7% are written by our people, you know, so we got other people writing our stories for us, you know, and um, so I, I got to thinking about it, you know, so you go to Barnes and Nobles, you know, or you go to Walmart and you look at these um, these books. And, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at all these different books and I'm going through dozens and dozens of books. And you only see one, two, maybe three or four books about African-Americans. And there's over 100 books on the shelf, you know, a lot of books. Yeah. And I, I had watched a. uh uh, a video on YouTube and the guy was saying, when you take a, a picture, when you get that picture, who's the first person that you look for? You know, once you look yourself. at that picture, you look for yourself, yourself, right? So he said, imagine, you know, reading a book, you know, as a child, you know, you, you trying to see if anybody else in the book look like you or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, all these different books and stuff, and it's about white kids doing these things and doing that things and stuff like that, as if African-Americans don't travel or do all these fascinating things as well. Right. You know, so uh, during my research, and I give uh, my wife's props because she was the one who told me to find myself because I was struggling on finding who I was as a writer to try because it's, it's so competitive. You got to try to find a way in. You know, so this was my way in, you know, because I was like, because my my first book, you know, was a was a beginner's book. You know, I was learning the industry, you know, and I had white characters. I had black characters, Asian characters and stuff like that. But most of my characters were white as well, you know, so. Now, is that the wonderful, magical place? Yeah, that's the wonderful, magical place, okay. you know, and it's a book of poetry. So after that, I was like, you know what, from now on, here on out, the only thing that that's going to be in my stories is black characters, you know. So and Davy's Pirate Ship Adventure and then Baby Kai and the Monster in the Closet is me and my family and a couple of their toys that I turned into characters. Mm-hmm. But it's all blacks, mm-hmm. you know, and not only that, you uh I wanted to sh- hit on some of the stereotypes there they got out there about black fathers and black men in general, you know, because right now you can't tell, but I got a lot of tattoos, you know, and if I'm out playing basketball or jogging or something like that, you see all my tattoos, you know, people, you know, they, they tend to get intimidated. They, they, yeah. uh, they immediately, exp- you know, Prison oh, tattoos. he's, he's a thug, you yeah. know, or mm-hmm. he, he's a drug dealer or, or somebody that's up to no good. Yeah, preconceived notions, stereotypes. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and both the stories I, I told my illustrator that I wanted it to be known that I was married. So my characters got rings on their finger that show that, hey, black man, we do commit. Yeah. You know, we do commit to our women and we do commit to our families and stuff. And I'm and the pictures show that. And I think that's very important. And uh, and not to knock, you know, any other 
African-American books, you know, because they are needed. You know, we do need to know about uh, slavery and we need to know about black culture and black hair and stuff. But we're so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's almost overkill because every mm-hmm. book about African-American is talking about growing up in the hood or being proud of being black or light skinned or anything like that. And that's not what we're all about. You know, so what I try to do is I try to bring the fun into it. Like when I was a kid, you know, the adventure, the stories and stuff like that. But at the same time, talk about those things or show those things indirectly, you know. So my son, you know, one of my sons have dreadlocks. You know, the other one has cornrows and another story. He has a fro. My wife has, you know, the big puffy, you know, natural uh, natural hair, you know, and stuff like that. And I'm not talking about it directly, but you see it, Mm -hmm. you know. And last year when I was on book tour. I would go to all white schools, you know, and I'd be like, you know, these kids have no idea what it is uh, to to know uh, a black person or, or their culture. And so in my stories. Now they get to see that, you know, so, they so get to see like both ways. Yeah, they get to learn. Yeah. It's, it's educational for uh, for non-black people, you know, because the last thing that that I want is for a small white girl or white boy to see me somewhere and they immediately think, oh, I need to be afraid of that guy, Mm -hmm. you know, just because of the way I look. But seeing my character in my children's stories, they could say, oh, you know, he looks like the dad in Davies Pirate Ship Adventure. And, you know, Mm -hmm. now they kind of are exposed to that in a way versus only seeing the bad gangster black dude on TV, you know. Sure. Um, Can I ask you a question real quick about your wonderful magical place. Now, wasn't that pulled for a moment? Uh, uh, yeah. To remake or revamp yeah. it? Yep. Now, um, I saw where it was going on sale still for like 109 to $318. Mm-hmm. Can you explain some of that? I mean, not, not uh, from you. Yeah, I can tell you exactly. Correct. So uh, what that is, is um, you get third-party sellers on Amazon. So when when the books when books get published... People, anybody can buy the books and resell them on these sites, you know. So whenever the book was uh, out, you know, they bought the book and I was paid, you know, the regular price and then they just resell it. Uh And once they see that the book is out of stock and no longer, you know, being sold, they jack the price up because it's not for sale anymore, you know. And now that it's being, you know, remade. Once uh, the new uh, version of it comes out, they might even bump the, bump it up yeah. even more because now, you know, it's it's rare. Uh, it's rare. Yeah. And it's a total remake. And especially if I become, you know, uh, a major author, you know, it's like, wow, you know, we got this lost book. Books. and Yes, the lost so, books. But yeah, it's uh, anybody can do it. You know, you can buy a book as soon as it comes off the market. You know, the price goes up. And I actually just uh, brought this game Rock Band. You know, for my kids, I used to play it a lot in college. Mm-hmm. And when, when I was in college, I only paid, you know, like $199 for it. Mm-hmm. I just spent 500 bucks because it's no longer, you know, really? made. Yeah. And I bought it from a third party person who was selling it because they were holding on to it. And it was still fresh, brand new out Wait of the package. Yeah, just waiting, you know. And I like rock band. Man, I got a rock band back there. I'm like, hold on now. Yeah. We can dust that off. <laughs> You know, we were speaking about your book. You you spoke on your on the illustrator. Who is the illustrator and do did they do all of your books? 
Yeah, uh, Mariah uh, Rauscher is my illustrator. She's actually uh, signed uh, with Scholastic. She does the uh, Princess Truly series for Scholastic. It's a great series. Um, and she was doing a book signing. She's actually here locally, too. She's in Chatham. And she was doing a book signing at my son's school, and I wasn't able to make it. So I had asked the principal if I can get her contact or whatever. So she gave her my contact. Uh, she gave the principal gave Amariah my contact or whatever. So Amariah, she was like, "Hey, you know, send me something." So I was like, "Okay, you know, I'm, I'm gonna send her, you know, something." I was a little nervous because I knew she was legit. Yeah. And I was like, "Man, she signed to Scholastics. Man, I'm trying to be a part of that. You know what I'm saying?" And so I sent her um, two poems. I sent her uh, Space Kid Mike, which is a poem that I wrote while I was in Iraq. And then I sent um, her um, Star Collector, which was also uh, another poem that I wrote while I was in Iraq. And she loved both of them, you know, because up until that point, I only had, you know, family and friends telling me that I was this awesome writer, you know. And then I had that one experience in high school, but I never had someone legit. You know, say, hey, you know, your work is good. And Amariah, she told me uh, right off the bat, she was like, I'm not going to just say this, um, but you, you are a really good writer. She's like, I loved your work, you know, and she was like, I like to sit down with you and, you know, possibly work with you. And I was like, man, this is this is cool because I was getting ready to go out to New York to a book conference and try to show my work to some uh, companies out there. And um at that point, I didn't have an illustrator. So, uh, Amariah and I, we sat down. And the funny thing is, is uh, you know, everybody got their stereotypes. And we got our stereotypes as well, you know, mm-hmm. about whites. So, when she was like, um, you know, meet me somewhere. Where do you want to go? And I was thinking, like, what can I do to impress <laughs> a white woman? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you ain't enjoying no more. <laughs> So I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna invite her to Starbucks, you know. So uh, I was like, white people love coffee, man. <laughs> so, so I invite her to uh, Starbucks, and uh, I got there before her, and I ordered her a large black coffee, you know. And um, I, I was, I was waiting, you know. When she got there, I was like, hey, you know, how you doing? I was like, I don't know if you what you drink. I was like, but I got you a large, you know, black coffee, you know. Mm-hmm. And she was like, thank you. That's exactly what I needed. And I was like, there you go. You know, yeah, stereotype work. You know? <laughs> but um, she went over all of my work. And up until this point, um, I wasn't exposed to like writing children's stories, picture books. You know, it's just always been poetry. And she was saying that um, she think I should get into writing um, children's picture books. And as she was going through my work, I think I had um, I had about 50 or 60 uh, poems they were already complete. And out of those 50 or 60, there were a couple of dozen of them where she was like, these can be children's picture books. Mm. So she kind of gave me the the rundown about uh, me being, she said, uh, she said not to take offense, but you're like a, a black unicorn in the children's industry. And then she was like, what I mean by that is there are no, there are hardly any black men writing children's picture books. And she's like, not only that, you know, you're young, you know, you're in your thirties. It's mostly older, you know, white women, you know, that are writing these children's books, you know, for African-American children. So she was like, you know, you're young, you're black, 
you're a man and yeah. you have tattoos and stuff. She was like, there are companies that are looking for people exactly like you. And she just believed in my work. You know, she actually believed uh, in my work more than I actually, you know, believed in myself because I wasn't, you know, I don't really, I'm not in like she's in, you know. And um, I guess it's always easier once you're already in the in crowd, you know, to say, oh, yeah, you got what it takes or whatever. But when you're on the outside looking in, it's still because she can't get me in there. You know, I still have to do the work and I have to impress the people. You know, she told me I can expose you. You know, I can, you know, mention you to people that I know, but I can't get you in. She's the potential. Yeah. So, um. So with her, she just pretty much fully supported my work and, you know, she did all my illustrations and everything for me. And she started when she goes on her book tours and her book signing, she, you know, mentions my work as well, you know, and she just she's just been a, a very big supporter. And I'm actually really grateful uh, for uh, her taking me under her wing. And uh, the sad thing about it is that when I went to New York, I kind of got dissed a little bit for having a white illustrator, you know, because it's just like, you know, how can you hmm. be writing about being black and having all these, you know, you know, black characters and stuff, but you're not supporting a black author by uh, having a black illustrator do your work for you, you know? And uh, she was, she was, you know, I like the fact that she was direct, but she told me, she was, I like your work, but I can't support it because, you know, your illustrator is white, you know? And um, I was like, you know, that's, that's cool. You know, uh, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but to me, it, it says a lot lot more when you have a black and a white person coming together to tackle oh, an yeah. issue sure. versus, you know, two black people trying to say, hey, you know, and that seems easy. Yeah, it is. It does seem I mean, easy, you know? you know, but when you have somebody that says, hey, yeah, this is an issue, you know, it, I think it speaks more, you know, it does. And, you know, you just take it with a grain, grain of salt, you know, not everybody's going to like your work in the industry. You know, I've had people that love my work you know i've had some some great feedback from some uh some big um book review companies uh Kirkview's review uh they gave me a great review on my book they're well known um and just as much as they love my work or you know you get the next person that say yeah you know this is pretty crappy you know you need to do better mm-hmm. you know and actually uh to be honest um i being self-published was easy for me. Uh, I made $30,000 off my first book, uh, children's picture books, uh, with over 3000 sales. And I, I was on my own book tour. I had, I was making enough money to hire a marketing team. I was in the news. I made front cover of soul magazine and everything like that. And the reason why I did that is because when I went to New York, you know, I'm in a room with all these other people just like myself who who want to impress these these big companies. And all you get is just three minutes. And it's actually down to the seconds. You know, you get, you know, 260 seconds, you know, to yeah. explain yourself to this person or whatever. And you were the 50th person. That they that they listen to that day, and they still yeah. got three hundred more people behind you. Yeah. you no know, waiting on lunch. Yeah, 
And after after it was done, you know, you know, I, I flew out there with my family, my wife, my kids. You know, you pay for a plane ticket, you pay for a hotel in Manhattan, you know. Taxing. Uh, it's taxing. Yeah. And I'm there and I'm trying to get this big opportunity to uh to make it in in the children's industry. And you, you do all that and then at the end of your two hundred and thirty seconds or whatever, they say, if you don't hear from us in six months, you, you know, your work wasn't for us. And you, and you and you and I didn't hear back from anybody. So you know, I, I didn't want to take it personal. You know, but I kind of did. You know, it's like, man, you sure. know, I can't. I did all this. I paid all this extra money, and just so you could say, you know, I'll get back with you if your works for, you know, for us. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna invest in my own self, and so instead of paying all this money to go to these different conferences in like Los Angeles and New York and and stuff, I just, you know, hired a marketing team, and I. I immediately started seeing success, you know, once I invested in myself and that was my whole thing. You know, I was like, you know what, instead of waiting for somebody to, you know, put me on or whatever, yeah. I'm going to go out there and get it myself, you know, and prove everybody, hey, you know, you should have, you know, hopped on when you had the chance, you know, now, you know, it's, it's too late or whatever. Yeah. Um, But then I hit, I hit, a, I hit a, a roadblock because I didn't realize how exhausting it is to do it all on your own mm -hmm. as a self-published author because um, that three-month book tour, you know, I still got a full-time job. Yeah. You know, I got a full-time job. I got a wife and two kids. Yeah. Uh, my wife still expects me to mow the yard and stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. I still got my, my stuff that I got to do at home. And on my off days, you know, I'm running up to Chicago. I'm going down to Georgia. I'm going to St. Louis, and I'm gone doing these uh, – these book events and stuff like that. And I'm getting tired and, you know, you get the hit and miss, you know, one day I'll make a couple thousand bucks, you know, the next three or four events, I don't make anything, you know? And so it was just like, you know what? I, I want to go traditional. And that's when you learn that if you're going to go traditional, you have to have an agent. And they're they're like the gatekeepers to going traditional. And when I say traditional, that's those contracts with the big companies like Scholastics and, you know, those type of companies. But they don't accept unsolicited work. So you have to have an agent, you know, to get your work seen by them. The game. Yeah. So these these agents, from my point of view, you know, and I don't want to, you know, be like a negative person. This is just my point of view because you get the. The ones out there that get their first book and boom, instant success, you know, and they, you know, making big money and stuff. But then you get the other ones who 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 don't get that instant success. And, you know, you always get told you just got to keep grinding and keep going and keep going. But then I told myself one day I can grind like this for the rest of my life and still never make it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. um, So with the uh, with the agents, you know, I was optimistic. You know, up until this point, I had got some really, really good reviews from some very notable uh, book reviewers. And uh, my first uh, my first agent turned my work down. You know, it was just a real simple. Hey, you know, I'm not really into the children's book stuff. You know, I'm more of this type of person. So your work isn't a fit for me. 
you know, the second person said the similar thing, but uh, the third, the third person, they didn't respond. But the fourth person is the one that kind of killed my, my motivation because, you know, she was the one that told me, like, I don't think you have what it takes to to perform on this level. You know, uh, she was like, your work to me, there's a she's her words was there's a lot of gold, but you got a lot more work to do. And, you know, she she didn't she doesn't know that I've made a lot of money off of my first book. You know, she doesn't know the success that I have locally. You know, I believe with the right person, I can be a very successful author nationally right. if I have the right person that's important and believe in my work. You know, it's just that you get these agents who are looking for that that quick buck. You know, somebody that's going to get them because it's, it's a job for them, too. And they're getting commission. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making money as well. And if you got this one person with a lot of gold, but he doesn't have any credibility, you know, you're not going to waste your time with him. And that's kind of wasting time yeah. in you. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt. You know, I kind of felt that I wasn't getting, you know, a chance because I was pretty much a nobody in the industry. And then, you know, when you hear. Because I had got the opportunity to meet successful authors. Because once you start going to these conferences and going to all these book things, you kind of start to get to know the who's the in and who's the out, uh-huh. you know. And then you you show your work to these these people who already have bestsellers and stuff like that. And you know, some of them could just be and being nice or what, you know. But I've had bestselling authors say, you know, I think you could be the next big thing. You know, you just have to find a way to stand out. Yeah, you know. But then when you get an agent say, I don't care what they told you. I don't think this is good, yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. and it, it kills your, your spirit. And then not only that, you know, you see the football player or the actor who most likely didn't write the book. They're just they got a ghostwriter and it boom, instant number one, instant bestseller. And I'm looking like, man, you know, my, my work is I ain't trying to, you know, hate on them, but I think my work is better than that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Put more into it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I had the fame. Uh, everybody want to talk about book stuff. You know, everybody want to have you out, you know, but I wasn't. Uh, I didn't meet the 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 goal that I wanted to meet for myself. A lot of people say, man, you know, you successful. You know, you you made it happen. You know, you made money. You got these two great books, you know. But for me, I didn't get to where I wanted to be. You know, so kind of what I did is just kind of like lay low for a little bit, you know, and until I get that motivation, you know, to to get back out there and to get back, you know, on the grind to try to build my confidence back up. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you get your confidence knocked down and you got to find a way to get up out of that hole. You do. You know, and that's just where, where it is. You do. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of going through all of that that you just spoke about, do you have a favorite book that you've created? Uh, you know what? I think my favorite uh, story that I have right now is called uh, I Love You Just the Same. Uh, it was actually one of the it was actually the first book that I wanted to to put out as a picture book. But uh, with the the way the business is, you know, after talking to Anne Mariah, she was like, that only reaches so many people. You know, you need to try to grab as many people as you can on your first go. So that's why we went with Davies Partnership Adventure. But I love you just the same is a, a story about my my wife and my oldest son. 
because I have a son from a previous relationship. And in this, you know, uh, I kind of got tired of how Disney and everybody hate, you know, on a step parent, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, my wife had my, my wife had a coworker uh, one day tell her um, it was something along the lines of, oh, you'll be fine. Right. Because, you know, that's not your your kid anyway. Or something, uh-huh. you know, someone along those lines. And it was like, how dare you say something like that? Like, you don't you don't know. Right. You know. And I'm so supposed to care. Yeah. So I wrote this. So I wrote this book for my wife and my son called I Love You Just the Same. And all it is is, you know, through the story is them her saying that even though I'm not your mother, I love you just the same. And people act like that's impossible. But there's step parents that love the kid more than the actual biological parent. True. You know, yeah. so that right there is my favorite book because it's, it's heartfelt. Uh, I really believe in that. And then at the end of the story, you know, when my youngest son is born, you know, so throughout the story, my wife's pregnant. You know, you can see her belly getting bigger. And then once the my younger son is born, you know, he's she's holding him while she's, you know, while my oldest boy is sitting on her lap. And she says, you know, even though I'm not your mother, I'll love you both the same, you know. And that's just, you know, that's that's my favorite, you know. So uh, actually, that'll be the next book to come out once I get back. Get back hitting it, uh, hitting running with it. So that sounds like a good awesome. one right there, man. Yeah. So, so it sounds like the shout out to the step parents doing anything out there. Yeah. Somebody, hey, hey, they, hey, some of y'all got your eyes watered up here, y'all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you got some step. That's that's uh, step parent families in here. Yeah, that's a, and that's a real that's a real subject. Parent, that's a real subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, doing your thing, man. That's what's up, though. I like that. I like that subject. That storyline is. It sounds awesome. So it, it sounds like the 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 book industry can get a little cutthroat. Then oh, it's definitely oh man. You don't even know, man, for real. Uh, <laughs> so like even with uh, so being self published is actually like running your own business and running your own company. You know, and so the book sells online for a certain price. I don't get I don't get that price that's that's online. So the the ten ninety nine or whatever, I'm not getting that. You know, I'm getting fifty cent, seventy five cent, you know, for, for the for, book. It's like record writer. deals. Yeah. You, so you're the writer in everything of the book and you still don't get Yeah, so so my my uh my production company I have to pay them for making the book, you know, for putting it in book form because I can't do that, you know. So I got to pay them for material and their their regular charging. And it's all, you know, based on how many copies. So usually when I order my books, I usually order uh, a couple of hundred, you know, three or four hundred books and I'll get the discounted rate. But I still have to pay them, you know, and once I pay them uh, for the book. Then if it sells on Amazon, Amazon gets their their cut and their cut is actually the biggest cut, you know. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, those those companies that are selling your work, they're getting the most money. You know, they're actually getting 55 percent of the profit because they're controlling the margin. Yeah. And then, you know, you also get uh, where they want discount 
You know, they be like, hey, you know, if you want us to sell your your book on our site, you're gonna have to give us a fifty five percent, sixty percent price uh, reduction. You know, and yeah. it's, a, it's a you know, take it or <laughs> leave throat. it. <laughs> you know, cutthroat. And uh, and sometimes you can't do that. You know, so me as a self published author. Uh, I don't have my own company to where I can make the cheap, cheap material, you know, uh, it's like a, from from my hardcover, you know, so Amazon. So Amazon wanted me to sell the book for uh, $18.99 for hardcover. I was like, ain't nobody going to pay $20 for a, a hardback children's book. I, was like, I need to find a way to reduce this price, you know, because. With the selling it at the eighteen ninety nine, they get their full fifty five percent discount, you know, and uh, that way I can still make some money off of it. So I I reduced it, you know, I reduced the price to, and I only gave them a forty percent. You know, they took the forty percent, but my book isn't getting stocked as fast as any other book, you know, and that's just how it is, and um. So I get paid next to nothing and it makes it more difficult. And then not only that, you know, you always get everybody that, that want that same discount or whatever. So you go you go to schools and you go to these, you know, you travel and stuff like that. And everybody wants to know how much can they get for free, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, man, you know, I, I can give this to you and stuff. But they don't know that they, you know, they killing you in the process, yeah. you know. But then you get this, you know, some people that say, you know, charge me the full price. You know, and and give me extra. You know, I had understand the game. Yeah, I had. You know, I have schools that that buy my book for every student in the school, and not only that, they pay me for coming. You know, to whereas you know now, you know, my thing is if you buy fifty or more books, I'll come. I'll do a free presentation for the school. You know, which is about an hour. You know, and um, I'll I'll stay and sign all the books. And then you get other schools that'll be like, you know, we want all that, but we want it at the lowest possible, you know, and we want you to do, you know, two presentations and, and cut it down and do all this and stuff. And I was like, that's not on my website. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, stuff. and then you look like the bad guy because it's like, how dare you not do this, you for know, for us, yeah. you know, and, and this I'm is a business. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm very direct, you know, and. You know, there was this one time where the school, you know, they wanted me to, you know, I sent the forms out to the school well ahead of time. And then so that way I could save on mailing, you know, you you give me the orders and then I, I fill out the order and then I send them all back in one order. You know, then you get the one school or whatever. They'll, oh, you know, they turned in their form late. Can you uh, come send this to the school, you know? And they kept coming back with, oh, you know, we have this dude and they miss it. It's like, look, you know, I'm not I'm not going to go to the post office every time one of these kids, you know, say, hey, you know, they want a book because now they seen everybody else had a book and they, they didn't yeah. get it. Yeah. You know, it was just like. And if, order if, it online. Yeah. You know, order it online. Yeah. You know, so. It's just, it's just uh, you know, and plus you got a lot of people out there doing stuff for free anyway. You know, and me, I charge now uh, seventy five dollars and just for an hour. But you get a lot, though. You know, yeah, you, you yeah, get yeah, you do. Yeah. Now, you you know, you get the you know, you pay the seventy five dollars. You get an hour presentation, 
you know, and then not only that, I give you, you know, I donate a hardcover book to your uh, library. And I think that's, that's I think that's pretty good. That's a win. You know? That's a win right yeah. there. Yeah. You're fully suited also in your uh, fire gear. Yeah, right? I do. Yeah, I do yeah. fire gear and I and I read the stories and stuff like yeah. that. But even then, it's just like, ah, you know, we don't got that in our in our budget. But they don't know that other schools, you know, hit me to the game. You know, they be like, oh, you know, we got all we got to do is put it in the the grant and we get it. You know, it's just that, you know, you get some people that want to, you know, get everything for free. And then you get some people that really support you and stuff, you know, kind of like my one of my good friends, uh, J.R. Whitaker, you know, in Jacksonville. He uh, owns a barbershop over there. Whenever I go, you know, me and him, we like family. I don't ever expect him to cut my son's hair for free. You know, I always pay him double the haircut because yeah. this is like, dude, I'm proud of you. You out here grinding. I'm going to do what I can to support you. So I'm going to pay more than the regular price just to help you out and say, hey, you know, I love you. I, I'm, I'm proud of what you're doing, you know, and you get a lot of people out that's not willing to do mm-hmm. that for you. That's you lost. Know, that's action, that's true. Action speaks louder than words. Instead of supporting you, I'm looking for a handout. Yeah. When I'm out here, when I see you doing your thing. Yeah. You know, he was actually the same person that uh that told me he was like, um, you know what's crazy? He was like, somebody will go out and and buy a Jay Z album or buy his music online or whatever and spend all the money you know that they got they last dollar for it. But then you see me, you know, and they won't buy a book. You know, it's just like, why not? You know, you got a dude that's yeah. coming in that lives in your town, out here trying to do his thing, you know, and <laughs> you know him. If you could talk to this person, you know, you could have a relationship with this person. You could say, hey, can you come over here and do this? And that person will do that for you. And you be like, hey, I ain't buying that dude stuff, man. You know, <laughs> you know. But a run out and and buy the you know somebody else stuff run. already famous. Yeah, run you out. Know? Yeah, you know we just gotta you know we gotta su- start supporting you know and that's what I say you know it's always good with the, I had told my wife I was like man if if I can get just the support man and just get out there because we got what a hundred and seventeen thousand people in Springfield mm-hmm. you know just imagine if support. I get that type of support. How far I can go, you know, and how much I will be able to give back to my own own community, because uh, what people don't know is that uh, I've donated over a thousand books, you know, all over. You know, I've donated uh, schools to the district, every elementary, every public elementary school in Springfield has copies of my book because I've donated to all. Oh, the wow. Schools. That's yeah. That's you awesome. know, and so I do. I do a lot of donating and stuff and i can give back a lot more you know to my community you know with the more support you know you get and stuff but right now you know i just have to try to get there first you know i can't you know keep doing favors or giving these free books out to everybody because then i'll never go anywhere you know and all i ask for the most part is when i go somewhere hey you spread the word you know say something about me or mention my name you know you know that's word of mouth is actually What's what's happening? You yeah. know, that's yeah. that's how you make it make it somewhere. Yeah. How can the listeners do that? How can they support you? Just talk about my work. Uh, the biggest the biggest thing that that you can do is go to when you go to your schools, and you know how schools they have these uh those uh those book fairs yeah. and stuff like that. Have the parents request my work. 
say, hey, we want to see this in Davies. Uh, we want to see Davies Pirate Ship Adventure in the book fair, you know. And when the schools in the area start saying, hey, we want these books, that motivates, you know, okay. the the companies to figure out who this guy is, you know, to get there. It's a demand. Yeah. And uh, my website, you know, uh, www.danielberkeley.com. That's D-A-N-U-A-L-B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. You know, spread the word about my about my website, you know, because I talk about, you know, what I'm trying to achieve on my website. You know, I got my wife and my kids on there, mm-hmm. you know, and you can go out there and you can go on the website and you can book me for an event, you know, so just spread the word. That's the, that's the best thing. For sure. Cool. But, but before we, we let you go out of here, we, we talked about most of everything, but we didn't tap in into the firefighter mm-hmm. portion. Um, so again, you know, just watch it on TV. Do you guys cook? Oh, yeah, we cook. So can you cook? Yeah, hey, nah, I get down in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, you know, I don't really get down at work like that, you okay. know, because, uh, you know, I'm at a, uh, a dual company house, so I'm on the engine, so the truck guys do all the cooking. But at home, I be whipping it up. What, what's, what's your best dish that you can cook? My best dish, you know what? My wife would say my best dish is probably uh, I make gourmet ramen. Yeah. So fly the noodles in from Japan. Whoa, you know, hey, that's what I, hey, I whoa. Can, yeah. Now, because this is funny because you don't you don't have any knowledge of this, but episode I want to say twenty nine. We're at sixty four, I believe. <laughs> so episode twenty nine was named Top Ramen because we were talking about making ramen and who had the best ramen. Oh, I'm the man right you here. You are. Yeah, I'm the man. I had yeah. one up until you flying in <laughs> the noodles. That's yeah. that alone without you even opening the package. You are the man on that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from, man. He said a lot of noodles in and it's like you know they they ain't frozen. They ain't them hard noodles, you know. They you know, you got to let them thaw out. You know, uh, where it, do you order those? No, 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 no. You don't, don't give up the plug. <laughs> no, 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 you don't give up the plug. <laughs> hey, hey, I smell an episode. I, I do smell too. an episode. Too. <laughs> so, with that being said, um, what's a food that you like that you can't get in town or where you, you know, in Jacksonville? Let's see. You know what? Uh, I, don't, I don't really know. You know, I'm I'm more of a a burger and a pizza, and I go to my mom's crib. You know, eat you know, mm-hmm. fish and spaghetti. You know, I actually just made a catfish and spaghetti at work for the guys, and they was like, "Why? Well, I didn't know this was a thing." Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. surprising. Yeah. yeah. How does that work in the firehouse, where where the guys are bringing things that they come from their own houses and traditions? You know, uh. You know, I crack jokes on the guys, man, at work and stuff. It's like, man, nobody want to eat uh, fruit salad today. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they, uh, you know, it's it's cool. You know, uh, you could tell the difference between, you know, the cooks and stuff. Like from when one of of the brothers is cooking, you know, you got the soul food mix and stuff like that. Uh, Because me, you know, when I make cornbread, I make cornbread with, with uh, cornmeal and, and flour versus the stuff in, in the box, yeah. you know. And they're like, man, you know, you made that from scratch? It's like, well, the, the instructions is on the bag, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But, it's you know, it's cool. You know, I actually, uh, you know, believe it or not, I never had chili 
before going to the fire department. Uh, That's a big thing in the house. Yeah, it's a every Saturday. You know, every Saturday we have chili at the station, um, and I, that was something that I, I didn't, I never really had before. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Who makes the best chili at the station? Okay, uh, the best chili at the station. You know, I will tell you what, I'm gonna have to, y'all might know him, but Phil Johnson. Hmm. Yeah, uh, a cat named Phil Johnson, man. He uh, got the chili. I, I like his chili a lot. A lot of guys, you know, if somebody here, they be like, "Oh man, I know he ain't say <laughs> Phil got the best <laughs> you know, chili and stuff like that." But I like Phil chili, and I actually stole his recipe. You know, and that's what I I make his recipe whenever I uh, make chili on Chili Day at work. That's tight. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, you know, first of all, I want to thank y'all for having me. This is a real, if y'all can see where I'm at right now, this is a real nice setup, you know, and uh, not only is it a real nice setup, it's nice to have, you know, to be around positive brothers, man. Yes. You know, it is, yes. it is nice having that and stuff. And I was just like, man, you know, I'm thinking in my, in my mind, like, man, I need to hang out with these cats, man. I need yeah. to hang out with these cats a little bit more and stuff, yeah. you know, uh, come see about that chili. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> ramen, you know, I yeah. think, uh, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, support the little guy out there, you know, because everybody got to start from somewhere, you know, and, you know, just just give out your support. You know, it just goes a long way. with just just mentioning something sometimes, you know, like, hey, man, you know, hey, have you heard, you know, the podcast, you know, or this or this or that, you know, just just put each other on, you know, and and just go from there. You know, that's just very important and stuff. And we're going to put you out there. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yep. I don't want to take away from that, but with the season uh, coming up and it could be cold out there, can you just leave our listeners with some things like some safety tips with these uh, with the outlets and the, the space heaters? Uh, and most definitely. Like most, uh, I'm glad you said space heaters. A lot of people, you know, uh, when the weather gets cold, you know, they forget that they packed a whole bunch of storage and stuff around their furnaces and stuff like that, you know, so you need to make sure you get that cl- cleared out, you know, cause we'll go to a house, you know, and when we go to the house for medical calls and stuff like that, we don't just go there for medical. Like we'll pay attention to fire hazards and stuff and give people tips. You know, uh, if you, if you're at home, right, I'm going to tell you right now, how many times I go to somebody's house and you hear the chirp from the smoke detector. If you hear your smoke detector mm. chirping, Change the batteries. Yes. Okay. Please. It's like people just, you know, Simple I'll be with things. Yeah. Simple. I'll be watching YouTube videos yeah. and you hear the smoke detector going off in the back. <laughs> you know, my cousin would be like, man, how you pick that up? You know, like, cuz, you know, but uh, yeah, your smoke detectors, you need to change uh, your smoke detectors, uh, batteries, at least uh, during daylight saving times. Now they're making a 10 year, interior one, 10 year ones. Uh, Springfield Fire Department, we have a, uh, a smoke detector install program for if you have a uh, a financial situation going on, you know, you call the fire department and we'll come to your house and we will install uh, the proper amount of smoke detectors for free, you know, uh, in your home to make sure you're safe and stuff like that. But, yeah, during this time, you know, you got Thanksgiving coming up, you know, don't uh, fry a turkey in the house or in the garage. <laughs> you know what you want to do with that is. Put water in your your fryer first and see what level it comes up to once you put the uh, turkey in there. And then that way, you know how much grease you need to put in there, because then, you know, you put that, you know, turkey in that grease and it overflows and it's all flames. 
You know, don't put That's water bad. on grease. Not a frozen turkey either. Yeah. Yep. But those are some uh, good tips. And and just if just feel free to stop by the station if you need to. The guys are always willing to help. You got questions, call the station. You it's know. a safe house. Yep. We'll help you. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, very powerful words from Mr. Daniel Berkeley. Like he said, get out there, support the little guy. The little guy's the one that actually cares for you. It's coming from the heart. It's not just taking funds and throwing it at whatever is going to be hot. With that being said, we thank you. We thank you for your continued mission to be a great person, a great father, uh, a pillar in the community as a first responder. We thank you for your service to the this country and yourself and your family. May God bless everything that you're doing. We appreciate what you've done. And it was a pleasure having you here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate all y'all. Happy Thanksgiving. And this is Intentional Danger Field.